You give us permission to use your name, profile picture, content, and information in connection with commercial sponsored or related content, such as brand about you the like, search or enhanced by us. To we collect the content with them, such as the people you communicate with the most and the groups you like to share with. We also collect information, as well as billing, shipping, and contact details. We collect information about the date or a file was created. Sound familiar? Well, it should. Because if you are on Facebook, you've agreed to all that and more. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where we bring you stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Nina Kopel, and today we look at media disruption. How much are you willing to pay for free content? Before I ask you this question and challenge your understanding of what's free and what isn't, let's take a step back in time. It's 1994, and this is what the internet sounds like. You kind of knew, you know, you really knew that something giant was was in the process of happening. And of course, the world sort of exploded once the internet and the browser had sort of made its way in onto people's desktops. You might remember Professor Glenn Whitewick from last episode. He's the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Technology, Sydney. As Australia began to tentatively dip a toe into the internet in the early 90s, Professor Whitewick had already fully immersed himself and was swimming around. I guess once I got into university and you could see where computing was starting to be applied. And back then, of course, you know, computers were still the domain mainly of big companies, big mainframe systems sitting in, you know, in specialised computer centres. But the PC had sort of arrived by that point and businesses and organisations were starting to use them and they were becoming a little bit more common for people to have a computer at home. So I don't think I ever sat down and said explicitly, hey, this is going to be big, but I just kind of knew inherently that it, that it, that it was. And, I, and it wasn't maybe until 10 years later when the internet really started to pervade. I worked at an organisation where we bought the internet in to support our, the research work. And at that point in Australia, companies weren't able to connect to to what was the internet in Australia, which is called Arnet. And they, they weren't allowed to because the rules of Arnet didn't allow for commercial traffic to be carried across the internet. But then browsers emerged. A few of us saw the Mosaic browser for the first time and we kind of realised immediately that this was just a significant thing that was occurring. So significant that they took it to the big guys in Canberra. They were the ones who said to then Prime Minister Keating hey, I think you might find this technology kind of interesting. And the group that I worked in in IBM at the time, we had the opportunity to set up a connection between that centre and Parliament House in Canberra because we decided that we were going to be able to demonstrate this to politicians. So we took these two massive screens up, you know, they kind of felt like they weighed a tonne, and set up a connection into Parliament House from where we were working in Melbourne. And a colleague of mine actually was in doing the demonstrations, had all these politicians coming past and they were admiring these massive screens. But one of the politicians was the Prime Minister. And so we were able to demonstrate to the Prime Minister at the time the World Wide Web. Now, I'm sure they probably don't remember, but it was just sort of that quite significant moment where, you know, once people saw it, they kind of realised that this was going to change the world. And, you know, you look back today, 
20, 25 years ago and, you know, how pervasive the internet has been and the World Wide Web and everything in our lives. And, you know, it was one of those moments where you kind of really remember it quite starkly. Do you remember what their response was? I remember that there was a Minister of Defence, I can't think of his name, and he was kind of a large guy. He was actually more interested in the size of the screens and the fact that he didn't have a screen in his office as big as the ones that we'd brought up there. But I think the, the response from everybody was, you know, they got it. You know, they could understand why this was going to be significant. Perhaps not much as we, you know, some of the technical people did, but most people kind of saw it and thought, hey, this is, this is going to be big. A vast array of information is being made available in attractive, easy-to-use form and for free over the Internet. It's funny to think that it was once so hard to convince people to get online, that someone had to go around spurting the benefits of the Internet and say, hey, you should try this. There's lots of cool free content out there. But as more and more people were convinced and began to enter the online realm, it became apparent that free content couldn't stay free for long. The one thing you have to do is to be willing to change and to to adopt what's going on in the marketplace. John Ewitt is head of production at news.com.au, but he started his career in the web and IT industry. So I probably started working around internet-related projects in the early 90s, pretty much when the browser came along, just working on um, an online marketplace. And then probably mid-90s, sort of as it really started to take off, we started working on a few other different projects and then I worked for a large web design firm around 2000 and then I really went heavier into tech after that for a couple of years working for a support company and then I got back into more of the the web-based stuff and started in media. John started working for Fairfax in 2003 as a product manager but went on to become the product director of News and was there until 2015. That means that he was with Fairfax for a long time as the company made some huge transitions, got itself online and then grappled with questions about how to make its online content profitable. It was very disruptive at the time. Obviously, you know, they've been in print for, what, now 180 years or something. And they were one of the very early adopters in terms of putting up a news website. And they put a lot of work into it and they put a lot of time into producing some really good online sites, you know, for the, the Mastheads, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And then they eventually launched Brisbane Times, Canberra Times and WA Today. And they've, they've progressed over time as the technology's changed. Obviously, it makes other opportunities available, the market becomes more sophisticated, the market becomes more demanding and, and obviously competition picks up. So you've got to try and stay at the forefront of what's going on and the technologies change as well. So it's all about sort of keeping up with how those changes come about, what opportunities that opens up to you and what type of content you're trying to present. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an evolving market. Certainly website designs or, or updates they tended to be sort of big bang affairs where you'd, you'd literally redesign a section, say, every two years, whereas now it's tending towards more of the, the iterative process because people are, people are really embracing agile methodologies. So putting small changes out there and, and getting the feedback and seeing if this is successful and then tweaking them to, to obviously better the response. Do you feel like both with Fairfax and where you are now with, with news.com that we've kind of worked out how to do it properly? Have we got it right yet? Look, I think we've always had it right in various ways, but it's a changing market, so you've got to respond to those dynamics. 
Sometimes you might lead the market with those changes, sometimes you might follow it, depending on what the market trends are at the time. The one thing you have to do is to be willing to change and to to adopt what's going on in the marketplace. You know, certainly over the last couple of years, it's very much that shift to mobile, multi-device use, really. A lot of people said that, you know, when mobile took off, you know, the desktop would die, but that's not really the case. People are still using desktops, but they're definitely accessing media from a number of different platforms now. But it's not just mobile challenging online content. There's something threatening the profitability of these sites, like a virus spreading through the internet, latching onto healthy advertisements and deactivating their potential. This is Adblock. This is Adblock protecting Bob on the internet. It's kind of ironic, an ad for Adblock, but they sell it as the last ad you'll ever see. If you download Adblock, you'll be like Bob, with newfound ninja powers that could break down advertisements, leaving you free to browse. On a site like news.com.au, for example, where John is head of production, it's the difference between seeing ads everywhere or just seeing content. But for John, this is dangerous. Different publishers take different approaches to this. I think probably some of the ones with subscription models, and if you've read anything recently, the New York Times is currently looking at having an ad-free subscription to see if that's going to resolve some of the issues around that. Various companies are putting up notices that they're tracking people who are coming to their site and using ad blockers and giving them messages to either subscribe to a newsletter, pay $1, whatever it might be. They're trying a lot of different things to see how they can break that cycle. But certainly that cycle is getting bigger. And if you look at something like, you know, some of the internet trends reports, you know, you'll definitely see that there's a higher adoption of ad blocking. Remember when I said I was going to ask you how much you're willing to pay for free content? Well, now's the time. And this is basically what it comes down to. If the consumer or viewer is getting the content for free, then what they're doing is paying with their attention on the advertising. Megan Brownlow from PricewaterhouseCooper is a media and entertainment industry specialist with two decades of experience, which means she's seen a lot of disruption over the years. The media industry is made up of 12 sectors, and some of them are doing really well, and some of them are doing not so well. And even within some sectors, like internet, some players are doing really well, and some aren't doing so well. So when you put it all together, you get an industry that's pretty healthy. So we're forecasting over the next five years that it will grow, in money terms, about 4% a year, which is not bad, slightly above GDP. But there are also some sectors that are still going backwards. Obviously, businesses that use paper still, newspapers, magazines, are challenged. Books, interestingly less so. Books will be in growth over the next five years. But who on the internet is getting it right? Who has managed to emerge from generations of physical mediums and transformed into something profitable online? Well, everyone's attempting to manage disruption in different ways. But according to Megan, news sites aren't exactly coming out on top. So the businesses that are taking most of the market in internet advertising are not content producing businesses. It's Google and Facebook. And what they have are a couple of things, amazingly good technology and the ability to 
scale their businesses. So when one person is on social media, it's not very valuable. When 12 million Australians are on Facebook, the fact that it's touching so many Australians increases that value because what it really provides that tech platform is data. And that's essentially what they're selling, data about their users. So what does that mean for for news websites? Do you think that in the current platform they've got any hope of actually breaking even? They do. Our view is that you can't rely on just one revenue stream like news businesses used to, or actually they used to rely on two. There used to be advertising and there used to be subscriptions. But it's very hard to get Australians to pay for digital content. We're pretty good at ripping stuff off and we're pretty reluctant to pay for something that's not physical. And so what happened with newspaper publishers, the news publishers generally, is that when they went to digital, and they did pretty early, they recognised quite soon that the readers, while they'd pay for a newspaper, wouldn't pay for news online. And so they went full on into advertising. But it's a much more competitive field. You've got many more players than just the few publishers who used to be their competitors in the traditional media sense. So to your question, will they ever break even? They will if they run a number of different businesses using the banners, the powerful brands that their mastheads and their news brands represent, because Australians trust those brands and we consume those brands in great volumes. But will, will there continue to be that trust, though, if they are relying on, you know, doing things like, what's the phrase they use? Native advertising. Native advertising, where they are incorporating that advertising into their content. Will we lose that trust and therefore lose their potential to actually market themselves? Well, that's a really good point. And so the players that are doing it well are very transparent about the fact that this is paid for content. And their challenge is to make the content interesting enough that your reader, your online user, will want to read it anyway with the full knowledge that this is paid for by brands. A bit like there's a couple of standout examples, mostly US, who do that transparency well. So Forbes magazine, when it became Forbes.com, they had native advertising that they called Sponsor's Voice. And so it was very clear that you were essentially reading paid-for content. In the battle of who is most profitable, it's not surprising that social media is kicking butt. If you could have shares in Facebook, you would. That is a huge success because, well, there is a number of reasons, but the obvious one is they have so much data on you, they can segment an audience down to these micro niches and target you very specifically because you've told them so much. You change your status, oh, I'm engaged, suddenly you get wedding dress ads. (laughs) That's what happens. That's a genius model. So they're fine. The newer social media platforms are perhaps struggling because the insertion of advertising is not as obvious. So Twitter, for example, the other challenge Twitter has is it's very much the darling of the digerati. So I bet everyone at 2SEO is on Twitter and consumes Twitter. I love Twitter. It's my favourite social media. But we're not representative necessarily of mainstream audiences. 
who spend their life on Facebook. So I think that a number of them will be successful. Some of them will fall off the perch. I'm not saying that's Twitter, but it's not 100% guaranteed that all of them will survive. But in this competitive online space, it's not just the way we consume content that's changing. We've all had moments of bewailing the state of listicle and cat-saturated media today. But Megan, who used to be a current affairs producer for Channel 9, says it isn't easy for content creators either. And I wouldn't necessarily want to be a journo now because the time that you've given to have thoughtful digestion of what you've heard has not necessarily served readers, viewers, listeners well. You're looking for the next... It's a sugar high and that's not great. I mean, I think there's some media that still does that and whenever there's a market failure like that, something will emerge to fill the gap. So websites like The Conversation, I think, is brilliant. The Drum's pretty good. That more thoughtful coverage of politics is great. But it's also fascinating to see... Now, I'm sure some people think this is lame, but the attempt to address younger voters, for example, doing the third debate on Facebook, that was pretty forward thinking. Very interesting. Yeah. But also, it's really funny because I think the only real analysis of that as an event on Facebook that I heard was on the ABC, they were they were being critical because people in regional communities who might not have great internet connection didn't have access to that. So that's is that something else that we're going to have to come to terms with? That is such a good point and I think a really just criticism. We have such a have and have nots digital divide in Australia. We're fine in Sydney, but you go out to the country, you're lucky if your mobile phone works, let alone the internet, and streaming, forget it, in so many places. And so, yeah, the challenge for us, I think, in our democracy is to not leave people behind digitally. And I know with the early plans of the NBN, the it was a donut plan. So the idea was to build in the regional areas first because it was assumed that metro areas had pretty good internet anyway. And we sort of do. Not best in the world, way down the list if we have a global comparison, but certainly better than the country. You remember when Megan was talking about media that was struggling in the face of the internet? Newspapers, magazines are challenged books, interestingly, less so. Well, I'm about to introduce you to someone who is going to challenge that idea, but who will also challenge your idea of what disruption is. I really wanted to create something that lasted longer than just the next release version or the next trend. And so I looked into creating something more tangible. And one of the things was a magazine. Kai used to be a web designer, but his urge to create something solid, something he could hold in his hands and keep led him down a completely new path. I really felt disconnected from just basically what I was creating. I put out all this stuff into this ether that is the internet and it would disappear after a few weeks, months or years and there was nothing to show for after a while. Now, when traveling for a while, found uh, all these amazing magazines and these bookshops around the world and that's when I kind of fell in love with the idea of producing a print magazine about the world that I was very familiar with, which was digital startups, entrepreneurship, 
technology. And so when I came back from that trip, I looked into what it takes to create a magazine and yeah, I basically started um, interviewing people, asking people whether they would want to be featured in a small independent magazine. At that point, I didn't really know whether I had you know, the knowledge to, to put together a magazine by myself. Uh, I, did, I spent a, quite a few weeks learning more about InDesign, about uh, publishing the pre-press process, mostly through video courses online. And then I put my project, my idea on Kickstarter and tried to raise the amount of money that, it, that I needed to uh, do the first print run. Kai's Kickstarter got really close but failed. He reached 12000 out of $18,000 and had to work out a plan B. In the end, he decided to take a risk and use his own funds to make the first edition himself. When I found out about Offscreen, I was... Well, I was really surprised... How on earth could you make a magazine about the internet and about technology without putting the content online? Surely the people who want to read about tech startups and the digital age are primarily inhabiting digital spaces. And that's why I asked Kai why none of his friends tried to talk him out of this idea. You have to understand, I come from an industry where, uh, you know, it's, it's all about new technology. It's always about the next big thing, chasing the newest trend, and especially in, the, in digital design, it's very trendy. And so a lot of people dismiss the idea of creating something in print, something that is very old school, something that doesn't require the latest technology. And when people suddenly saw that there's something that is interesting to them in terms of um, topic, in terms of subject, matter um they they suddenly realized oh yeah this is actually something that i didn't consider maybe i should buy a copy when they received it a few weeks later i think a lot of people realized that there's something really unique about that experience of print about having something that has a a definite beginning and a definite end something that you can um, sort of dip in and out as you please rather than this thing demanding your attention all the time which is something that we are very used to spending you know 10 hours or so on the screen realization afterwards that people have a similar experience to me. They want something more tangible in their life, but a lot of times the things that they're reading or that that are offered to them are not really related enough to their everyday work. And so, or, or it would be something that is repeating what already exists on the screen. And so they didn't see the point in spending $20 on, on something in print. But I think, off screen, I think I managed to show them that there's there's value in in not just the, the tangible product itself, but also in that process of that 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 the care that goes into editing something for print because it goes through a lot of a lot more iterations, a lot more thoughtful processing than putting together a quick blog post. Do you think that hypothetically, if if you took the content that you're making and you did put it online, do you think that that would be profitable at all? No, not at all. I think there's no money. Uh, content, especially in, in in my field, there's so much what they call content marketing nowadays. So any any big brand has a blog or 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 a, a medium section or or some sort of uh, content aggregator where they where they just push out daily two or three blog posts about customer stories or about something related to what they're selling. And so the idea of content being valuable has completely disappeared. It's more about being a tool to sell something else. Again, this is something that happens in my industry a lot. And I think, you know, the the interviews, everyone does interviews nowadays. You can see it not just in blogs, but also in podcasts and videos and eBooks. It's all cheaply produced content, right? 
And so selling an interview or selling a brief piece about a company and a founder t- talking about how they came up with the idea of a product or a company, uh, there's no money in that at all. But I think repackaging that into a, a product that is a lot more considered, uh, considered and it's a lot more curated and edited, getting rid of all the noise and just telling a story in a way that suits the printed format. But Offscreen hasn't just resulted in a tangible, created thing for Kai, who's the magazine's founder, editor, and publisher. It's generating him an income as well. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the, the Offscreen is just one of many, many independent magazines. There has been a bit of a renaissance or a revival of, of independent publishing that's based on similar principles. It's more about finding a really unique niche that you can become a, a, an authoritative voice there's a principle of a thousand true fans. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, but the idea is that the internet affords you with a platform that you can look for a thousand fans that are so dedicated to what you do that they pretty much buy anything you produce. And the indie magazine market relies on that idea that you can just find a niche that you become an authority in and then build those, this fan base of a thousand true fans and they then allow you to create and live and make a living with what you do. It's not really competing with the mainstream media magazines out in the shops and the newsstands. It's very much focused on a small niche. And uh, that niche is really, you know, they, they actually, them buying the magazine is allowing me to do what I do, not, not the big advertisers. So is this disruption going full circle? Is the emergence of indie magazines going to pose a threat to online content the same way that the internet through paper mediums? Well, no, not exactly. It's very, very popular to talk about print being dead and then, oh no, but hang on, there's now magazines out there and it looks like it's not dead. I totally believe that there's certain types of printed media that, that are dying and there's no going back from, from, from where they're now, like you know, newspapers and all that. But I think it's important to know that it's just always changing. Like people always think that that's the end of print, but it's not. Same as it's not the end of the book. It's just constantly changing and evolving, and the internet's just accelerating that change. And I think that is the point that I'm trying to get to with these these sort of this mini series within a series about disruption is that things keep changing, and it's it's about kind of trying to keep up with them and navigate that change. It's not, you know, that the internet came along and then that was that was it and now we're all, everything's amazing. We're still trying to navigate that space and work out where media fits into that landscape. Yeah, and I think there's been an analogy in, in, a, in an editor's note, I can't remember what magazine it was, but it was basically saying that the, the car has sort of replaced the, the horse as, as something that, that has been used to get things done uh, and now the horse, hasn't completely gone away. It's become sort of this leisure experience that people, you know, use to to switch off and relax and have a different experience. And I think in a similar way, the, the printed medium has sort of lost its utility to a certain extent and has become this leisure experience that you spend a bit more time on. Or maybe it's a bit like chocolate. You know, you you spend a bit more money on on good chocolate and you you savor it more for it, not not less. You know, it's just. It's become a bit more of a, of, a, of a luxury item, I think.
You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by typing Think Digital Futures into iTunes or your favorite podcast app. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. Thanks to Lawrence Bull for helping out on the show this week. I'm Nina Copel. Talk to you next time.